Chapter 4, Lie Number 4, The Gospel. The Gospel is a slippery subject, to say the least. It is the central tenet of the Christian faith and practice. The Gospel, or good news, is supposed to be something simple, obvious, a thing that anyone and everyone can define in just a few words. Even if explaining the Gospel takes more time, certainly stating the Gospel should not take that long. Yet, in practice, it is not that easy. In fact, try it on for size. Go ahead. Attempt to put the gospel into words right now. I'll wait for you. Now, so as not to confuse the matter with ambiguity, I do not mean the name of the body of writings penned by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are formerly called Gospels because they give a written account of the life and ministry of Jesus the Messiah, which is very good news. I am asking you, the reader, to attempt to define what the good news actually is. If someone were to ask you, what is the Gospel? How would you respond? This is a simple test to show you just how far Christianity has strayed from the source. Ask anyone you know, erudite or layman, scholar or slob, old or young, wise or foolish. Ask anyone what the gospel is, because it is, after all, the cardinal canon of our faith and the foundation of our beliefs. It is also what we are tasked with sharing with others as a matter of eternal life and death. So its import cannot be overstated. Yet, despite all of this, I have yet to meet two people who have the same answer for what the gospel is. That is correct. I have never met two Christians who could give me the same definition of what the gospel is. Now, that should not be. In fact, the Apostle Paul would have blown a gasket were he to catch wind of what Christianity has done to the gospel with a capital G. What has been done to the gospel since the days of Paul? The letter to the Galatians is the first piece of evidence that I submit to you. Exhibit A, if you will. Paul opens the letter to the Galatians, and he is not a happy camper. After five verses of name-dropping to secure his credentials and some well-wishing to get the niceties out of the way, he began in verse 6 by blasting the Galatian churches with both barrels. He proceeded to lay out very clearly to the recipients of his letter that there was only one gospel. Period. Opponents to the rationale That there is only one gospel, make the case that the word gospel is used 93 times in the ESV and has many different meanings and nuances. The words good news are used another 21 times in the New Testament alone. This is all fine and good. Yet, apparently, nobody let Paul in on that information because he was livid in his letter to the Galatians. Paul believed vehemently that there was only one gospel, and he had as much access to Matthew, Mark, 
Luke, and John, where the word gospel is used 14 times and the words good news another nine. In fact, Paul was so adamant that there was only one gospel that he brought a curse on anyone in heaven or on earth who would attempt to alter that gospel in any way, shape, or form. If Paul got so up in arms about any addition to or diminishing from the gospel, how do the opponents to this line of reasoning harmonize the supposed various meanings of the word gospel with Paul's letter to the Galatians? Can you appreciate what Paul had just done in chapter 1 of the Galatian epistle? He was claiming that the gospel is a certain way. Thus far, and in this letter, he had not told the Galatians what the gospel was. He assumed that they remembered exactly what the gospel was from his prior teachings. Let us call this yet unspecified gospel to which Paul is referring X. His argument goes something like this. I did not receive X, nor was I taught X by any man on earth. I did receive X in a direct revelation from Jesus himself. Therefore, any mutation of X, however large or small, is no longer X. Whomever changes X, whether a man or an angel, may God damn him forever. Does that sound like X, in this case, is something to be trifled with or carelessly tossed around? How precise would Paul have others be in the handling of X? Do you think my definition of X, or your definition of X, or the preacher's definition of X would be all right as long as it's fairly close to Paul's definition of X? Paul made it very clear that any addition to or subtraction from X was a direct violation of God's word and would come with curses. Once again, Paul was simply following the pattern that was established several millennia before him, the Lord's pattern for adding to and taking from any word that he has spoken. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Deuteronomy 12 and verse 32. John echoes this same pattern at the close of the Revelation, chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. If you go on to read chapters 27 and 28 of Deuteronomy, you will get an education in the unspeakable atrocities in the form of curses that will befall those who add to or take from or simply disregard altogether what the Lord has established. Yet, is it not odd that you will get as many answers to what the gospel is as you ask persons? My point is, we do not even know what the gospel is, 
And what is more, the gospel has never changed, not even once throughout history, according to Paul. It was God's gospel first. He taught it to Abraham. It remained unaltered all the way down the line to Jesus and lastly to Shaul or Paul. There is only one gospel. It cannot change. It has not changed. And it will not change. Yet we do not even know how to articulate it because we have ignored Paul's strict and unambiguous presentation of the gospel while adopting the definition that we are most fond of. We have followed a bastardized, euthanized, sterilized, and spiritualized version of the gospel that our fathers inherited. If one does not even understand what the gospel is, then how could he purport to know what is the reason that Jesus lived as a human, died, and then rose again as a human? The gospel is precisely defined in only one place in the New Testament, and it is in the same letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. Now you, the reader, finally get to see what X is and why it is so vitally important that it remain unchanged. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Emphasis mine. There you have it. That is the gospel according to God, and the same gospel according to Paul. I did not say that the gospel needs no explanation, because it does. But what Paul told the Galatian believers to remember as the gospel was, in Abraham, all the Gentiles shall be blessed. How many ways can one articulate this gospel without adding to or taking from it? Let's see. In Abraham shall all the nations be blessed. In Abraham shall all the Gentiles be blessed. All the Gentiles will be blessed in Abraham. Changing the syntax or word order or using synonyms, Gentile, nation, was not what Paul had in mind. We see this because even Paul himself goes on to explain what is meant by in you in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Galatians. Please do not misunderstand. This is the gospel, yet it needs interpretation. It needs to be explained. Even Paul knew that. The gospel, according to Paul, is not John 3.16. John 3.16 is good news, to be sure, but it is not the gospel. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins is not the gospel, though, again, it is good news. However, even this last statement needs explanation or interpretation. God knew, Paul knew, and you know that people need to understand why and how the Gentiles will be blessed in Abraham. That is the subject of this chapter. In it, I will attempt to explain how the Gentiles shall be blessed in Abraham, or as Paul puts it in verse 16, in Abraham's seed, that is, 
in Christ Jesus. One of the lies that our fathers have inherited is that the gospel, or good news, is that Jesus died on the cross to save humans from their sin. Let me be crystal clear about two things. Jesus did die on the cross. Jesus did save us from our sins. Those two statements are absolutely 100% true. But those two statements are not the gospel. Those two statements are truths that describe, in part, how the gospel was accomplished. Back at the beginning of all things, Adam and Eve were given authority to rule over the earth. They were to carry out their dominion while staying neatly inside of the Creator's framework for life. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is what God said. He was under no obligation to explain himself or to give a reason why he said not to eat it. He owed Adam and Eve no elaboration or clarification of the commandment. He simply asked them to obey. Their obedience guaranteed them life, authority, and longevity. But they broke his commandment. Adam and Eve sinned. The Bible defines sin as the breaking of God's law. Paul explains what happened in Romans chapter 7, verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. It is the same story since the Garden of Eden all the way down through Paul right up to the present time. Sin has been seizing an opportunity through the commandments since the beginning. To break God's law is to sin, and the price is paid with the breaker's life. When Adam and Eve's eyes were opened, their consciences were awakened. What did Adam and Eve fear before they sinned? Nothing. That is because nothing could take their life. What did they fear after they sinned? Death. Humans have feared death ever since the fall. All of humankind inherited a fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 18 explains that the devil wields the power of death. It goes on to describe how anyone who fears death is a slave. Most humans learn to fear death at a tender age. As a result of our fear of death, we become lifelong slaves of death, or better said, Slaves of the one who holds the power of death, the devil. God is a gentleman. He is honor, legitimacy, justice, and goodness. Therefore, as such, God has been honoring the legality that exists between sin, death, and humanity. Not because he wants to, but because he must. For he is truth and justice. However, he was not about to sit back, throw his hands up, and concede, well, what are you going to do? He got right to work. Legally, every single human that sins must die. God knows this, and certainly the devil does too. 
One way to liberate humans from the place of the dead, known as Sheol in Hebrew, would be to storm the castle, break open the keep, and demand that all residents be freed without delay. However, God cannot break his own word. And he very clearly said to Adam and Eve, On the day that you break my command, you will surely die. This edict was not for them alone, but was passed on to all human beings who ever lived. The only way for a human being not to die would be for him or her to never sin. The undead. Enoch and Elijah never tasted death. Not yet, anyways. Are we to conclude that Enoch and Elijah never sinned? Certainly not. The Bible is clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Those two prophets may not have tasted death, but they will. It seems only fitting that the two witnesses described in Revelation chapter 11 are Enoch and Elijah. Both were spared from death temporarily to interpret other roles. However, because there was only one who never sinned, and he is not them, they will indeed die one day. Either God is bound by his word, or he is not. Either he can make exceptions, or he cannot. If God is bound by his word, and he cannot make exceptions, then he is faithfully just, true, and perfect. This is why we conclude that the two witnesses must be the aforementioned men, and their death is simply delayed at the present time. Their lives and deaths are detailed in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. So, God rolled up his sleeves and began to conceive of a way to legally undo what Adam and Eve did when they handed their God-given authority over all the earth to the evil one. But how? How can the living God go to the place where only the dead are admitted? Once again, God is not a genie that can poof himself in and out of places. The doors to Sheol are locked and the key was handed to the devil. Abraham was called. He answered. God now had the family line through which he would enter this world. God was so serious about saving the world that he entered into a covenant with Abraham. But this was no ordinary covenant. Abraham and the Lord entered into a blood covenant. A blood covenant is where two or more parties enter into a relationship with each other, make promises to each other, and the terms of the covenant are decided by the greater party, in this case, God. Both parties then remove their footwear and walk through the blood that has formed a path from the severed animals brought in and laid over against each other. The covenant is bound by blood. That means that if one or the other party breaks the terms of the covenant or fails to fulfill a promise, he will pay with his life. It is a symbol that reflects reality. In the account recorded in Genesis chapter 15, 
Abraham fell into a deep sleep and had a vision. I do not believe this was a dream, but a vision of reality taking place on a different plane or in a different realm. Abraham saw two objects pass through the blood as a result of cutting the animals, except for the birds, in half that the Lord had previously told him to bring. The first object to pass through the blood was a smoking fire pot. This object symbolized God because not only would he go first as the greater party, but fire and smoke are always a picture of God in the Bible. The second object to walk through the blood was a flaming torch. Do you know what the Lord's favorite picture in the Bible for human beings is? Judges 9, Psalm 96, Jeremiah 17, Proverbs 27, trees. Now think about what a flaming torch is. What is a torch made out of? Wood. What are trees made out of? Wood. It is fire and wood, a branch set ablaze. If we follow the picture to where it leads us, then as Abraham was about to step into the blood, suddenly God, expressed as one like a son of man, that is, a human being, stood up, kicked off his sandals, and walked through the blood that Abraham should have walked through. This is what Abraham saw. This is what actually took place. God was so serious about his covenant with Abraham, recorded in Genesis 12, that he was willing to walk barefoot through animal blood to say to Abraham, I love you and I am committed to humanity's survival and prosperity, so much so that if I falter in what I have promised, you may do this to me. That is, you may take my life. What is it that God promised? Genesis 12 says that God promised to give Abraham offspring, land, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The gospel! And then, when it was Abraham's turn to do the same, God caused Abraham to see the vision of the reality of how God would fulfill humanity's side of the covenant in Jesus Messiah. That is when God in heaven came down as a flaming torch, God expressed as a human, fire and wood, and walked through that blood to say, If you fail to keep your part of the covenant, human being, you Humanity may do this to me. That is, take my life. And in that cosmic moment in time, God the Word agreed that He would become flesh and die for the humans. It is an incredible moment. Genesis 12 records God's covenant and chapter 15 of the same book records the making of that covenant in blood. This is the gospel. This is the very good news 
that has not and will not change forever. In Abraham's seed, that is, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God would come down as the Messiah, a human being, and he would be delivered over to death. But why? Why did Jesus have to die? There are many reasons why he had to die, one of which we have already discussed in chapter 1. None but the dead are permitted to enter Sheol. Another is that humanity broke their promise to keep the covenant, and the wages of sin is death. But the most shocking, and by far the most undiscovered reason in Christianity is so that Israel could remarry God. Israel committed adultery many, many times when she whored after other gods. The first time she was unfaithful to God was during the wedding itself on Mount Sinai when she made and worshipped the golden calf. This can be found in Exodus chapter 32 and spoken of again in Exodus 34. Jeremiah 3 chronicles the divorcing of God from unfaithful Israel. The Lord asked a rhetorical question in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Jeremiah. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord. The answer is no. She will not, nor can she return to the Lord after receiving the certificate of divorce and becoming the wife of another. More on that in a bit. But first, the rest of Jeremiah 3, verses 6 through 9. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a certificate of divorce. As stated before, Israel cannot come back and be the Lord's bride or wife ever again. But why? The answer is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, like when she commits adultery against him. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that 
is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Emphasis mine. So, now God was stuck between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, he had divorced Israel because she was unfaithful so many times. Rightly so, she deserved it. But, on the other hand, the Lord promised to be her husband, and she promised to be his wife. This was the covenant made at Sinai. She broke faith. He did not. He cannot, for he is God, and he cannot deny himself. He promised to marry her and live with her forever. But he also divorced her, never again able to take her back as his wife, since she had become the wife of countless other lovers. What was he to do? How could he fulfill his vows while not breaking his own law of marriage and committing an abomination against himself? Please remember that the Lord could not simply find another bride, slap the name Israel on her, and marry her. He already swore on his own life that he would marry Israel and Israel alone. How could he marry the sons of Jacob and the mixed multitude that came up out of Egypt if he divorced her and she became the wife of many others? This is where Jesus came in. And in Romans chapter 7, Paul explains to them the incredible and totally unforeseen work that Jesus did by becoming human and by dying on the cross. Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This whole context is about the law of marriage. It does not yet extend its reach to the entire Torah. The Lord's solution to his conundrum of how to take Israel back was to die, release her from the law of marriage, which she broke, mind you, and free her to marry another, to him 
who has been raised from the dead. God exploited once again a loophole that he created in his own law. Please do not think that a loophole in God's law was in any way unplanned. For accidents do not befall the Lord God Almighty. He found a way around his own law of marriage by dying for Israel in order to release her from the penalty of the marriage law, which stated that the husband can never take back his former wife once she had become the wife of another. Then he was raised from the dead so that Israel might have the opportunity to be united with him for all time, just as in a marriage. Pretty amazing. Most people would say that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. That's like telling someone that cooking delicious gourmet food is about oregano. It's a whole lot more than that. Christianity has drawn the conclusion erroneously that verse 6 of Romans 7 had Paul telling the Romans that they were released from the Torah, the Mosaic law which held them captive. Let's take a look at verse 6 inside the context in which Paul placed it. Here's what we have so far. 1. The Mosaic law stated in Exodus 20 that Israel must not commit adultery. That is the seventh commandment. Israel did commit adultery innumerable times and was divorced as a result. Jeremiah chapter 3. 2. The Mosaic law stated in Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 that a man cannot take back his former wife if he has divorced her and she has become the wife of another man. Even if her new husband divorces her, or her new husband dies. Israel did become the wife of others on numerous occasions. This is chronicled very clearly in Ezekiel chapter 16 and many other places. 3. Paul reminded his readers in Romans 7 that the laws about marriage, which are contained in the Mosaic law, are binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Let's put the pieces of this puzzle down in linear progression in order to see what kind of rational sense it makes to draw the conclusion that Christianity has drawn from verse 6, which is that Paul told the Romans that they were released from the Torah. 1. God said, there are rules. Two, Israel broke the rules. Three, God found a solution to the rules. Four, Jesus died so that the requirements of the rules were satisfied. And then Paul said, five, you don't have to follow the rules anymore. What kind of sense does that make? That is not only highly illogical, but totally undermines the validity of the rules in the first place. Paul allegedly said in verse 6 of Romans 7 that we were all released from the law of Moses, which held us captive, 
in the ESV. The word captive is an awful translation and overextends its meaning to captured, as in held against one's will. However, the ESV did correctly translate the nuance of bound in verse 2 of Romans 7. A married woman is bound by law to her husband. Take me, for example. I am married to my wife. I am also bound by law to her in our marriage as long as either one of us remains alive. Am I held captive to her by law? That's a pretty negative perspective, especially to one who is happily and willingly married to the wife he has so chosen to become bound to. This is either ignorant or irresponsible translation by the folks of the ESV and either demonstrates a total lack of understanding regarding the duration of the Mosaic Law or reeks of an agenda to eliminate the Law of Moses. The NIV correctly grasps the meaning of the Greek katecho and renders it as bound, even though the Greek word for bind, tie, or fasten in verse 2 is dedetai. It is beyond clear, logically and contextually, that the law to which Paul is referring in Romans 7 verses 1 through 6 is the law of marriage. Only in verse 7 does Paul extend the meaning of law to the Mosaic law. Reading verse 7 of Romans 7, Paul asks another rhetorical question, which he promptly answers. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. What is the Greek word for sinful? Hamartia. And it means to wander from the law of God, violate God's law. That definition comes straight out of the Greek lexicon. Verse 7 should read, What shall we say then? Is God's law wandering from the law of God? Is God's law violating God's law? Certainly not. Verse 6 of chapter 7 of Romans in the ESV says, But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What it should say is the following, But now we are released from the law of marriage. Having died, we are no longer legally bound by marriage to sin and death, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written certificate of divorce. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1, he writes her a certificate of divorcement. This is the word sefer. Romans 7 and verse 6, and not in the old way of the written code. The Greek does not say written code. The word is gramma, as in grammar. Grama is a letter, handwritten note, a bill, a bond, a record, a certificate. Both grama and sefer mean document, writing, 
book, legal document, certificate, record, and handwritten note. Paul is not talking about a written code as in the law of Moses. On the contrary, Paul is talking about the certificate of divorce that God gave to Israel. That is the entire context of Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. The old way of the written certificate stipulated that Israel or anyone who had attached himself to Israel, even those not descended from Jacob, is forbidden from remarriage to her husband if she was the wife of another. He or she can never again be in a marriage covenant with the Lord as long as the husband lives. This is why the husband had to die. This is one of the greatest reasons that Jesus died on the cross to free us, not from the law of Moses, but from the written certificate that forbade us from remarrying God. Now we simply must choose whether he is the husband we desire or not. If we choose him, we must enter into covenant with him and his laws of covenant do not change. That is why he puts the same laws on our hearts in the renewed covenant and not on stone tablets as stated in Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. This is the gospel explained. In Abraham, all the nations, Gentiles, shall be blessed. In Abraham's seed, that is, in Jesus the Messiah, all the Gentiles will have a way to get into covenant with the Lord. It is only through Jesus' sinless life, illegal death, and powerful resurrection that all Gentiles now have the opportunity to marry the Lord alongside and as part of Israel. Remember that Israel consisted of the 12 tribes of Israel and the mixed multitude of sojourners that came up out of Egypt in the Exodus. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Exodus 12 and verse 49. For the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. Numbers chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. I am not advocating that in order to come into covenant with the Lord, all males must be circumcised. Remember that Abraham entered into covenant with the Lord before he was circumcised. This is clearly explained in Genesis 15 and verse 6 and by Paul in Romans 4 verses 9 through 12. In case you are still not convinced or wondering how you could possibly be considered part of Israel in the eyes of God, 
We simply need to read what He has written in His Holy Word. You were included into the family of Israel before you were ever born. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. Deuteronomy 29, verses 10 through 15. You, dear reader, were most certainly not standing with Moses on the day those words were spoken. Yet the Lord was always thinking of you and of all who would come into covenant with him to be his lawfully wedded wife and he to be our lawfully wedded husband. If you are not part of Israel, dear reader, then to whom do you propose to be wed? In Jeremiah 31, 31, the place in Scripture where our New Testament gets its name, God makes His new or renewed covenant with only two peoples, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The house of Judah is also a part of the house of Israel. How do you suppose to be under the new covenant if you're not part of one of those two houses? The gospel is more beautiful than anything we could have ever imagined. It is so rich, so deep, so inviting, so pure, and so precious. Yet you have not heard this gospel preached and taught in Christianity. How much more has been stripped from our heritage? hidden from our forebears, and eliminated from our doctrines because our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and things wherein there is no profit. God's gospel has been, is, and always will be that in Abraham's seed, that is in Yeshua, Jesus, all the Gentiles of the earth will be blessed. We become part of Israel through Jesus, the Messiah, and by His blood, His death, and His resurrection. Our entrance into covenant with the Lord is through Jesus and Jesus alone. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 
According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is also Hosea 1, verses 6 through 11, almost verbatim. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those out of covenant with God, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If you have attached yourself to Jesus, you have by default attached yourself to Israel as a sojourner. You are part of Israel and an heir to the covenants and promises, Ephesians 2 and verse 19. And you are under covenant with God. If you are part of Israel, then not only do the covenants and promises belong to you, but the laws that bind and ratify those covenants are also yours. You are a legitimate son and co-heir with Christ. And if that is true, our question must be, how now shall we live?